Good morning, Canyon Hills. Happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> we are working through Acts 19 through 23 under this theme of March On. March On, um, for the glory of Christ, March On. And particularly today, this video shows us someone who marched for a bigger cause. And I think it's kind of ironic because when you think of St. Patrick's Day today, it's like parades and drinking, if we're honest. It's really about a lot of drinking. And so I kind of feel bad for this person, St. Patrick, who gave his life to God and did all these amazing things. And yet what his, he's kind of known for today is this weird parades and drinking kind of holiday with leprechauns and, and gold and everything else. Kind of, kind of weird, kind of ironic, because of what he actually was doing was marching for God. And so I'm kind of using that as our subject to jump off of, because when we think of St. Patrick, he was someone who marched for, to a different drum, as we talked about two weeks ago. He was someone who marched on the battlefield, as we talked about last week. And today, as we talk about marching for a cause bigger than ourselves, he definitely did that. In fact, he's the type of person who, even though the world may take it out of, do other things with what he was trying to do, he's someone who would have done it anyway because he pressed on, he marched on, he understood that he was marching for something far bigger than himself. So as we have studied Paul, we study someone who is the same. He is someone who over and over and over again is attacked and beaten down and all kinds of things happen to him, and yet... Because he knows why he's marching, because he knows the cause of what he's marching for, he's willing to press through that and continue to press forward. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open to Acts chapter 20. And if you're on the edge, please take a moment to pass the pins down the rows, and then you can take out your notes as we go along here. If you have your app, you can move to Acts chapter 20. That's where we're going to spend most of our time. Where we find Paul at this uh, stage in Acts chapter 20 is in the city of Troas. Now, this is a city that was part of the ancient Greek empire, and it was on the northern tip of Turkey on the western coast. When he gets there, he immediately jumps into action, starts sharing. But this is a city that he has been to before. So he actually has quite a few followers already. There's a church growing and building already. So he's there for a week. And after that week, he's ready to move to the next location. But before he goes, he takes all of the believers, the elders, those who are wanting to have this last moment together, up to this third story room inside of a house. And he begins talking to these men and whoever else was in that room. And here's what happens. We'll jump in at verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread, so they were going to remember Jesus Christ. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight, all right, which is amazing. I'll say that again. He kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Why do you throw that in there? Well, the lamps of this time period is torches. So you're in this room, it's warm fire all around you, okay? There's a, probably a little bit of smoke because torches don't work like 
our lights do, so it's going to put off some smoke. So you have this smoky haze room. It's warm, and the guy is talking until midnight, all right? To really feel what that room felt like, I thought we could, prob- we could just reenact it today and just put a bunch of fire pits around the room, and I'll just speak all the way till midnight, if that's cool with you guys. I figured everyone would be really down for that. So just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Uh, seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on and on. I love that that's in the Bible. Just hilarious. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. All right. All right. Let's stop there for a moment because this to me is one of the funniest stories in the Bible. Now, I know it doesn't sound funny yet, but it is going to be funny at the end of this story. I kind of know the end, so I, I find it so humorous that a guy spoke so long that someone fell asleep and fell out the window to his death. I, I, what, I, what I feel when I hear this, because people fall asleep when I'm speaking all the time. I see you. But I feel like, oh, this is, this is those moments when you're trying to share Christ with people and they're arguing about the placement of the plants in the room, right? This is those, those annoying moments where you're like trying to fire people up and yet there's not enough money to like buy chairs. Like you, all your coworkers are talking about the copy machine and you're like, oh, I just want to, I want to talk about something so much bigger. And we're arguing about the copy machine and how many copies can be made and what those cost. And you're just... Enter your annoying moment of trying to do something for God, trying to move something forward, and yet the most ironic, horrible, annoying, mountainous squabbles that always are happening as you're pressing on. So I see Paul here, and he's like, I'm sharing Jesus with people, and that guy just fell asleep and fell out the window. I I just... There's only one way, there's only one reason you keep pressing forward. The cause is bigger than yourself. Because if you ever make it about yourself, you're just going to throw your hands up and say, I'm done. But if you can continue to keep your eyes on, all right, this isn't about me. This is about doing what God's called me to do. If I will stay connected to the call of where God has called me and how God's moving me forward, all the little things along the way that are super annoying, and they will be there. That's part of life. I'll be able to press on anyway. I coach this group of church planters, and I talk about this all the time. I say, all right, as you move forward, as you're launching your church, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. It's all these little things that are going to happen, and you're going to want to quit about 50 times in your first year. You just are. You just get so annoyed, and you're done. And every time you feel like you're going to quit, there's only one thing that's going to hold you, and that's the original call of what you felt God saying at the beginning. And so around the room, I'll say, okay, why did you feel like God called you to do this? And so they tell their story, and I'll say, hold that story. Because you need to keep that story every time you want to quit. I was called by God. This is what I felt. This is what he said. This is what he told me to do. So I'm going to keep pressing on. I'm going to march on and do it. Paul shows us what that's like. Verse 10. 
even though someone's just fallen out the window, all right, here's where we are, verse 10. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread, ate, and after talking until daylight, okay, after talking until daylight, he left. And the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. I'm not really sure what the bigger miracle is, the fact that someone was, you know, risen from the dead or that people listened to someone that spoke till the sun went down and then was still there when the sun came back up. I think in my lifetime I might see someone rise from the dead before someone speaks all night and the whole room's cool with it and it just speaks for I don't know how long that was. But it, it's, it's one of these stories where I see the cause is bigger than the moment. Because if I'm Paul, I'd be crying. I'd be like, oh, how did that just happen? But we don't see a, a stop. We see him run downstairs, hug this guy, bring him back to life, and then go back up, have a meal together, and then keep talking. That's impressive. This is the story. I think I, this one burned in my head the first time I heard it. I'm like, that's impressive. Because I would have quit. I'd be like, okay, guy just fell out the window. I'm done. I'm out. But that's not what we see here. Um, what's cool about Acts 20 is the rest of the chapter, what we see is his marching orders. Really cool because he's talking to the elders of this church, the ones that are going to take care of the church. And you can put yourself into the same phraseology of elders and ministers throughout the rest of this because that's what he meant. Those followers, those believers, the Christians, the ones that were going to take care of the church and take care of each other, that's who he's talking to for the rest of this chapter before he leaves. So we're going to take these orders as, all right, what are we marching for and how is it bigger? How is it bigger than us as we move forward? He says this in verse 17. You know, I'm about halfway through it. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you? From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the, in, in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. I want to focus on that word humility. Um, I'm wearing this wristband, and I have wristbands for all of you today that says March On. It's a green wristband, and I want it to mean a couple things. One, when you're actually marching, it's a reminder to keep pressing forward, no matter what the struggles, those little things, the frustrations, to keep marching forward. But it's also a reminder of Paul's call to the elders and what he told them to do. The first thing he says is humility. You need to have humility. So in your notes, on your first one there, right, it begins in humility. And when I typed in the computer, I wanted to kind of figure out um, how I wanted to share this with you guys. I came across this video and it inspired me, so I wanted to share it with you. One thing in common that they all have is humility. They knowing that we all are in the same boat, everyone has challenges, everyone has different gifts, and we're in this together. I have learned that if I ever become a person who feels like I'm better than someone else is when I start putting barriers up, when I start becoming less transparent, when I'm not as compassionate, 
where I'm not as loving and giving. You know, more than the goal that I achieve or, or the success that I have is who I affect along the way. And to love and impart encouragement to people around me, that always begins with humility. To care for someone means you're not thinking about yourself, you're thinking about them. The greatest thing to start with when you're planning for success is to be humble. So the reason that kind of jumped out at me is I had just watched lots of pastors talking about humility. I was reading about it and trying, I was seeing the more the clinical uh, response of this. And then I saw this video and I go, see, that's someone who understands humility and shows it by living beyond the struggles of life. And obviously there are unfair situations, things that happen that are just that's not fair. Only you are facing it, and others don't have to face what you're facing. And it's, it's frustrating when that happens. It's not fair. And yet that's the life we live in, a very unfair one. And will we still be humble? Will we still say, God, I am thankful for the life that you've given to me? I'm not going to have this expectation of something that I deserve. I'm going to live a life that shows who you are. In Paul, I see that over and over and over again. He has all the reasons in the world to feel entitled. He has God himself using him to move across and share the greatest gift of Jesus Christ with everyone. He could feel entitled. He could feel like God owes him something. Look at all that he had to suffer. I'm suffering. I'm dealing with these things, God. I expect you to take care of me. There's a lot of ways he could feel entitled, but he doesn't. He never says things like that. Instead, he continues to march because the cause is bigger than himself. And we have to remember that. Uh, we were owed hell. We're not owed something else. We don't go into this thinking that we're going to gain a ton out of it. We were owed for our sins, death. And God gave us a gift in himself, in Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. That gift is not an entitlement gift. That gift is something that humbles us and keeps us humble and says, God, thank you for that gift. And now I'm going to share it with as many people as I possibly can. Paul shows us this over and over. In verse 23, he says this, I only know that in every city in the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That's, that's someone who understands humility, right? I think that's what you said <laughs> near you. I am so impressed by Paul over and over to have this kind of response, to be humbled to lead in humility. In verse 28, it says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which is bought with his own blood. So when you look at this band, the first thing I want you to be thinking about is as I march forward, do I march with humility? But second was right there in those verses. Let this green band remind you to keep watch over yourselves. Very interesting. This is a present active imperative. An imperative means it's absolutely necessary or required. It's a command. This is not a verse that is speaking in a way that says, hey, keep in mind that you should keep watch over yourself. 
No, it's, it's said with a command tense, meaning you are supposed to be doing this daily, that you have to keep watch over yourself daily. It can't be just an outward activity of actions that you do where you try and show that you're a Christian. That's not how it works. The way it works is if it's a rich, deep relationship with you and God, and it's so rich and deep inside of you that it overflows into your actions. There's a lot of Christians that put on the Christian cap at the right moments, and they can act like a Christian. It's very impressive when they do it. But then it changes as they're in different settings. What, we're t- what keeping watch over yourself is all about is you, your relationship with Jesus Christ starts to leak out in everything you do. You can't help but be who Christ has called you to be because it's always just overflowing out of who you are. John Owen said this, A minister may fill the pews, his communion roll, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. And again, I want you to know you're all ministers. This is not like a message for pastors. That's not how the Bible speaks of ministers. It's the caretakers of the church. The church is the body of believers, not the building. We're all ministers, and the way that's going to leak out is how we act at home, how we act to our kids, to our spouse, what we're like when we're at work with our friends and the representation of everywhere we go. Will we march for something that's bigger than ourselves? Richard Baxter in the book Reformed Pastor, he said this, Take heed to yourselves, lest you live in those sins which you preach against in others, and lest you be guilty of that which you daily condemn. What is he talking about? He's talking about the hypocrites. Uh, Sadly, hypocrisy is something that is very part of the church, a very big part of the church. You're hearing it all the time with people who were in very high positions as Christian leaders, and now everyone just calls them a hypocrite because what they were doing in private was not what they spoke of in public. But don't let it just be about those high, whoever they are, on some kind of pedestal people. It's every one of us. And if we are hypocrites, if we act one way in one place and one way in another, and those two things don't match, you will be called out. It's going to matter. And your whole concept of of who you're trying to be as a Christian is going to break down if that's the way you're living. Let this be a reminder Keep watch over yourself. We're going to do a series. I'm really excited about it. It's right after Easter called Habits. And my, my hope is with all the people that are here on Easter, we can draw them back the next week and we start this six-week study of habits. And there's a book. There's the Sermon on Sunday. And then in your life groups, you'll be going over these habits. And what they are is, is the classic habits of Christianity, the prayer, fasting, service. But if we do those things in community and help each other, what we're doing is we're keeping watch over each other and helping each other to get stronger and stronger in those habits in which we will not be hypocrites, we'll be exactly who God calls us to be and march to a bigger cause than ourselves. Paul continues in verse 29, says this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves, 
will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So as you wear this band, mine keeps slipping below my shirt. As you wear this band, let it remind you of humility, uh, keeping watch over yourself. And the third one in your notes there is to protect each other. We also need to protect each other and to help each other. Why? Because there really are savage wolves that are going to try and tear us apart. Those truly exist. They're in the Bible. They're in our world. They're moving and always trying to, you know. I want to give you an example. It's these two missionaries in Israel, and they wrote this in their prayer journal. The result of the fighting and killing has left a profound sense of discouragement that hovers over the country. Several times we have come into closer contact with this conflict than our comfort zone allowed. Yesterday, a friend said she was watching a shepherd caring for his flock near the area where guns were fired. And every time the shots rang out, the sheep scattered in fright. The shepherd touched each of them with his staff and spoke calmly to them. And the sheep settled down because they trusted the shepherd. Then another shot sounded and the same routine happened. Each time, the sheep needed the shepherd to orientate them again and to reassure them that they were safe. And the person, the missionary writes, We are like those sheep. When we are frightened, our shepherd reaches out and touches us with his staff, speaking words of calm and comfort. I share this kind of long illustration with you because this room is filled with God's people. And yes, we have our ultimate shepherd. And when the challenges of life ring out next to us, and they will always ring out, he is with his staff touching us and caring for us and calming us. But we're also supposed to be helping each other. I could mention a lot of verses that speak of us caring and protecting and loving on each other. Paul has no doubt that after his departure, false teachers were going to come in and try and woo this baby church into other directions. Why? It happened in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11.4. It happened in Galatia in Galatians 1.6. Whenever the truth is proclaimed, he knows that Satan will immediately come with false teachers, savage wolves, and try and teach something that is not true. In Revelation 2.2, it says this. He's talking to the church of Ephesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. He's actually giving them a compliment, saying, the church in Ephesus, you had these savage wolves come in, and you expelled them because you knew the truth, and you were able to recognize a false teacher. So if it happens in Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus, why would we not think it's not going to happen here? It has continued to happen over and over all throughout history. So part of the protection is knowing our word and knowing when someone is not speaking correctly and they're saying something that's not true and calling it out. We have to be protecting each other constantly because our cause is bigger than ourselves. Listen to verse 32. 
Now, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So he ends with quite a few things there, and I'm going to sum them up all as this. As you have this band on, we're talking about humility. We're talking about keeping watch over yourself. We're talking about protecting each other. And then summing up these last verses is study, pray, and march on. Will you constantly be in your word? Will you constantly be talking to God? And will you march forward day in and day out? The Bible has a lot of places. I just picked a couple where it speaks of knowing your Bible, knowing your word, being able, having it on your lips. 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 Timothy 3, 2 Peter 3, all focus on is the Bible on your lips. Do you know it? Do you pray? Do you constantly use it when you're in your speech and in your conversation and in your conversation to God and your relationship and your prayer life? Speak these words. The other thing that he mentions that I need to really focus in on is this word sanctified. It's a key word for Christians to know and understand what he did with the death on the cross for our lives. Now, it's kind of a big word, and so when I looked it up and how I wanted to share it, I found this great video that's about my speed when it comes to learning, so I'm going to show it to you guys. Sanctification. Say it with me. Sanctification. Sanctification. Oh, I love it. What is it? Just as the word justification means to justify, the word sanctification means to sanctify. But I don't know what sanctify means. I wasn't finished. Sanctify means to make holy or to free from sin. Remember when we said God wants to save us from the stain of sin? That's justification. We get a new label. In God's eyes, we become righteous. But we also said God wants to save us from the power of sin. So sin no longer has control over us, no longer whispers in our ears. We become more like Jesus. That's sanctification. Sanctif sanctification. Okay. Save. I think you started over right there. <laughs> So whenever I can use puppets, you know, giving a sermon, I'm going to do it. It's just my way. I think it helps it stick, to be honest. Because what that word is about, yeah, you are, you are freed. You are justified with the, the cross. That's why you can stand before God as a sinless person. But you're also freed to live a life for Christ. That's sanctification. So you can have an abundant life now because sin doesn't control you. That's why it's such a key when you talk about stuff like this. Yeah, you're going to have all the frustrations and the annoyances and the, the life, life, life happens. But you have been freed from being controlled by any of that. You choose. You choose whether or not you're going to be humble, whether or not you're going to let your life live in a way where you take care and watch over yourself. You choose whether or not you're going to protect the church or be one of the savage wolves within it. Not that any of that is you. But you choose, right? And in this case, you choose whether or not you're going to know your word. You're going to spend time and pray and know God. 
and live a life that leads for him. I wanted to stop here because I'm sort of assuming the room is full of all Christians, and that's not always good. So if you are here today and you haven't made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life, I want to encourage you in this moment to also do that. So every head bowed, every eye closed. Um, I'm not... I'm not going to pull you up front or do anything embarrassing, but what we see in Romans 3 is when we make a public confession of our faith, that God makes a a public confession of our faith, that Jesus makes a confession of our faith to God himself. And so what this moment is, it's a relationship with God that will continue, and there's many steps along the way. It's a journey. But one of the first steps we can do is just say, I'm in. God, I don't understand everything. I don't know everything, but I know enough to say I want Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of my life. I want forgiveness of sins. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I'm willing to move forward in that. I have to figure out the rest. There may be some things I need to change, but I'm taking that first step to say, yes, I want you, Jesus, in my life. If you're here today and you're making that first step, I want you to raise your hand and say, that's me. I just need to take a first step with God. And again, I'm not going to embarrass you, but it is a moment in which we get to take a step forward. Just raise your hand and lift it up. Amen. And if you do need to make that commitment, but you're not quite ready, I want to encourage you also to pray with someone Talk to someone, share with a friend. But that's that first step of sanctification in our life. Amen. You can look up. As I close, I want to close with this. A.W. Tozer wrote this. Do you know who gives me the most trouble? Do you know who I pray for the most in my pastoral work? Any guesses? Self, that's right. Is it like on the screen behind me? Yeah, it is. Elders who say one thing and do another are untrustworthy, and they're in danger of being the cause of another stumbling. They will not be able to say, as it says in Acts 20, 26, therefore I testify you to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Elders should therefore be diligent in their attendance at the means of grace. Be eager to uphold the scriptures. Be men of prayer and have a love for the souls of men and women. Again, I want to say, we are the elders, we are the ministers, we represent this Christ. And as we do that, will we march for something bigger than ourselves? So as you leave today, I have a band for each and every one of you. You don't have to take one. It's for you as a reminder. And if you feel ready to do that, it's on the table in between the two double doors. And as you take it, let it be a reminder What does it remind you of? Just to make sure I get this right. That it begins in humility. Keep watch over yourself. Protect each other. And then study, pray, and march on. Amen? Amen. May I pray for you. Lord, thank you for Paul's life once again. And in Acts 20, it is that moment where you just want to throw your hands up in the air and go, God, I'm done. But when we continue to come back to why we do this, why we want to be a Christian, and why we feel called to do something far greater, 
will march on. Lord, I thank you for a Paul who immediately ran down the stairs, threw his body on this other guy, and helped him, brought him back to life because he so believed in the mission of what you were doing in his life. Lord, let us have that same desire to press on no matter what we're facing in this world. And help us, Lord, do it with these, these calls that you have given us. We will humble ourselves before you. Lord, I love you, and we give you ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen.